Good morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, the beginning of a week in which the church reenacts and reimagines, participates in, and meditates on these central events and our salvation that won us salvation. And it all begins today with Jesus going into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, with crowds, myriads of people gathered around him, shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, each and every person that first Palm Sunday that was gathered there, they had a different idea about who Jesus was what his identity was. That's one of the things we learn in the Palm Sunday story. It's one of the reasons why when Jesus marches into Jerusalem, they shout Hosanna, and then just days later they shout crucify him. Because he didn't meet their expectations. Everyone there had a different idea about who Jesus was, but... But the most important person's idea about who Jesus was, was Jesus' own. Who did Jesus think he was when he marched into Jerusalem? We've been in a series in the book of Isaiah, looking at who God is and learning from Isaiah how to think about God rightly and how to know God rightly. Not just think about God. And there in the midst of Isaiah, we have a passage that was just read, Isaiah 53. And it's the passage that if you want to know who Jesus thought he was, then you need to go to Isaiah 53. It was Isaiah 53 that Jesus alluded to when he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It was Isaiah 53 that Jesus was alluding to when he took the cup on that night, the night before he was betrayed, and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for the remission of your sins. And the suffering servant would pour his life out. It's Isaiah 53 that all the New Testament writers are reflecting on when they think about who Jesus was, whether it's in the book of First Peter, the one who who knew no sin but, but, gave, uh, but died for the sins of others, or whether it's um, Philippians chapter 2, and the one who poured himself out, emptied himself. It's Isaiah 53. It's this passage. And so, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, this is one of the chapters that lies at the very heart of the Scriptures, And it's the very holy of holies of divine writ. Let us therefore put off our shoes from our feet, for the place whereon we stand is especially holy ground. I'm going to pray for us because we're on holy ground. And there's no way that I can do it justice. So let's pray. Oh, would that we would see Jesus. And not just see Him, but experience Him. 
have our hearts melted by him, transformed by him, love him. Holy Spirit, reveal Christ to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a lot that we could look at in this passage, and we could sit here all day, all week. Uh, but I'm going to just look at three things that this tells us about Jesus, where if we think about Jesus' identity and who Jesus was, when what he was doing when he marched into Jerusalem that final week, uh, how we can understand him better. And the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus comes in the most unexpected way. One of the things, one of the big questions that we have to ask, and you probably have asked yourself, in some way, shape, or form, is this. If Jesus is God's means of salvation for the world, and if Jesus is God's provision that God had been promising for so long, then why didn't more people accept him? And why don't more people accept him today? In fact, this is the crisis that the Apostle Paul is dealing with if you read Romans 9-11. through Why have my fellow countrymen not seen the Messiah? You know, Isaiah, he anticipates this question. And he anticipates this problem. He says in verse 1, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed our message? You see, Isaiah knows that he's about to tell you something that frankly is a bit unbelievable, uh, that, that it will leave you with a sense of incredulity. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The, the Savior that I'm about to telling you, tell you about does not meet your expectations in any way, shape, or form. First of all, he was unassuming. Verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. It's been raining a lot lately, and uh, and I haven't really noticed. I noticed the rain, but I haven't noticed my yard. And then I kind of looked around, and then I see like these little plants growing up everywhere. And I sit there, look at them, and, and you think, well, it's a little plant. You could just pluck it, or you could disregard it. It seems seems not to be very um, flashy. Well, Jesus wasn't very flashy. He was born in Bethlehem, and then he came out of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathaniel said? You see, we expect leaders and saviors and powerful people, the ones who are going to, um, to lead us, we expect them to come from certain places. Just look at the majority of presidents of the United States of America and where they went to college. Most are Ivy Leagues. Look at prime ministers in in Britain. Most of them went to Eton. And most of them went to Cambridge or Oxford. But Jesus, he he graduated from a carpenter shop. He doesn't come come with pomp. He doesn't come with, with prestige. He comes in an unassuming manner. And not only is he unassuming, he's also unattractive. Look at verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. It's amazing if you look at the art, how we depict Jesus. You know, if you look at the art, you can always pick out which one Jesus is, can't you? 
And if you watch the movies, you can always pick out because the light always shines on him just a little bit better, right? And so you think, you know, if you showed up and Jesus showed up, you would know who he was. But I would suggest to you that you couldn't pick him out of this crowd just looking. You know, I like, I'm going to be honest, I like attractive things on the surface. We all do. It's why food presentation means so much. You know, you ever seen something that could taste really good, but you look at it and you're like, ah, and you don't order that, right? When you go to those restaurants and you're like, you need a better photographer. You've seen those pictures. You know the ones I'm talking about. I was once talking to a, a guy who's from Canada, Prairie Land, Saskatchewan, and I'm asking him, like, okay, so half the year it's negative 40. What do you do in Saskatchewan? He goes, well, we, nothing. Um, <laughs> And I was like, well, then how do people survive? He goes, well, we ranch. And he goes, I, I can't tell you about much, but I can tell you about a good steak. He said, most people, when they go to pick out a steak, they go in and they look for the really bright red and pretty and marbled kind of steak. That's what most of you look for. He goes, that's not the good steak. You want the one that's kind of ugly, that's kind of blue and brown and about to turn. Because that's the one that's really, really good. See, I know how to pick, up a good, uh, pick out a good steak because I'm from Saskatchewan. That's what you, what you learn, you know. And I took that lesson and I took it to heart and I still pick out the, the, bat, I pick out the ugly steak now, but that's not the one I'm attracted to. He, he was unattractive. And not only was he unattractive, it says that he was weak. Verse 3 says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That this was his life and this was his lot. That he didn't have a life that we would envy or esteem. And that he was acquainted with pain. Pain haunted him. You know, most of the time we don't, we don't fault people for the pain that they experience most of the time and the suffering, if they have a life full of suffering, but nor do we want to follow those who can't overcome it and get over it. Kind of always their life is marked by trial and pain and suffering. And yet this was Jesus' lot. So here's my question to you. If I came to your work tomorrow and said, hey, there's a new CEO coming, and let me describe them for you. This person is, um, well, well, you're probably not going to notice them, and their resume doesn't really stick out, kind of unassuming, and, uh, and they're kind of mousy, maybe, you're kind of quiet, and also, and it's something else that you should know about, I'm just, by the way, I'm going to warn you, they're not very attractive. And so you'd be tempted to look away. And, um, and they suffer from chronic pain, and it kind of marks their life. And what are your thoughts? You're probably thinking, I need to get my resume together because this ship is sinking. See, we're not attracted to those who are unassuming and not beautiful and weak. In fact, we are more prone to reject them. That's why verse 3 says that he was despised and rejected by us. See, weakness is something that we think is something to be 
despised more than esteemed. And if you don't believe me, then just think about this. Think about your own weaknesses and what you do with them. Don't you hide them? I do. Aren't you a bit embarrassed of them? He was despised and we esteemed him not. And I think that's why we often miss Jesus is because he doesn't come the way that we expect. I had a professor in seminary who was at, um, he was at, He was in Cambridge, and he was at the Cambridge New Testament Seminar. You go to the theology building in Cambridge, it's very regal and beautiful. uh, Well, it's surrounded by regal and beautiful buildings, but you'll know that if if you go to the the theology department, it's when they had like this kind of idea of like, let's get future and modern, and they created an egg. It looks like an egg, seriously. But you go in, and there are all these kind of scholars around, this big table, and you're sitting around. And, um, and a seminary professor of mine, he was sitting in this Cambridge New Testament seminar, and he's there, and he keeps looking over in the corner because there's this man who's there in the corner, and he is literally wearing, at the Cambridge New Testament seminar, where, you know, Cambridge is a little more formal than here. They usually wear, you know, at least a jacket, probably a tie, maybe an ascot or something like that. And this guy in the corner, he has on overalls. And... My seminary professor is thinking, like, who is this farmer who rocked up in the Cambridge New Testament seminar and is sitting there in the corner? And he's like, oh, well, whatever. Uh, and so then they're, they're going on the discussion, and the guy's back there, and he's kind of quiet. He's got his overalls on. And then all of a sudden, you know, at some very pertinent point, he just quotes a Greek philosopher out of nowhere from, like, Greek. And my seminary professor sat there, and he goes, man. Even the farmers in Cambridge know Greek philosophers. (laughs) Anyway, he didn't think much of it, and then he he dismissed it, and they left. And then later, he's talking to someone at the tea, and he goes, you know, who who is that farmer that came in? Does he normally come? What's that? And someone goes, oh, that's F.F. Bruce. He's the premier New Testament scholar of, like, evangelicalism over the past, you know, 40 years. And it happened to be like before photos and things like that. And this was one of my seminary professor's heroes. But he didn't meet him. He missed him. He dismissed him. You know, I think often that's how we approach Jesus. I think often that's our experience with Jesus. I think often that's our relationship with Jesus. Because we are looking for Jesus to show up in a Learjet. And not on a donkey. We're looking for a Jesus to come in a fighter jet to crush his enemies, not melt his enemies' hearts. We're looking for Jesus to look to to show up in like big and powerful and noticeable ways that are just kind of like explosive and dynamite. It's why, have you ever noticed this? Christians keep talking about revivals and movements. Why is every Christian ministry these days called a movement? I mean, it sounds really important and big, a movement. But what if that's not how God ordinarily shows up? What if he shows up in the mundane, not in the spectacular? What if he shows up in the the muck and the mire and the humdrum of everyday life? 
You see, we pray, we say, God, reveal yourself to me, show up in my life. And then there's a knowing person at our small group, and we leave. We say, God, show up in my life, do something big, show up, I want to see you. And then our car breaks down. And we look at these minor annoyances, and that's how we view them, as minor annoyances or things that we have to leave and leave behind. But maybe God is actually answering our prayer. Maybe that's actually the way that he shows up. You see, the servant shows us that God, the way that he works, the way that he reveals himself, it is strength in weakness. It's It's his joy in the midst of sorrow. It's his light shining in the darkness. This is how God most often reveals himself. And so the question that I think Isaiah is putting before us this morning is, will you receive Jesus in those places? Will you receive him as he shows up and not as we expect him to show up? in the pain, and the suffering, and the sorrow, and the hardship, and in the mundaneness of everyday life and interactions, and in the annoyances of everyday life and interactions. Because that's where he wants to meet you, and that's where he reveals himself. Which for some of us should be terribly encouraging. Because we thought that God was absent, and maybe... The reasons that we thought God is absent is actually the very things that tell us that he's most present. Working in those places in our life. You see, this is, this is the way, God's way. Jesus is often not the Savior that we want, and he doesn't show up like we want, but he is the Savior that we need. Which brings us to the second point. That Jesus comes to meet our deepest need. He not only comes in the most unexpected way, he comes to meet our deepest need. What is your deepest need this morning? What do you need? What occupies your thoughts to think, if only this would change about myself or my circumstances? What do you need? Isaiah says in verse 6, all, we all like sheep have gone astray. Now, I'm going to be honest, that doesn't really sound so bad, going astray. I think most of us are willing to admit that we go astray, right? That we're not quite on the path. That's why we're willing to pay lots of money to, to, um, to health professionals and nutrition experts to kind of get us on the right path to be our best selves. Because most of us, we're okay to admit that we're not our best selves. And we will, we will pay a lot of money and hire counselors uh, to help us get over roadblocks and around them because we realize that we're just a little off and we need our circumference kind of adjusted a little bit. We're, we're willing to admit that we, all of us, are pretty much willing to admit that we need a little help in various areas. Which is why the solution that Isaiah presents is so shocking and disturbing. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah is saying that in order for us to be healed, he had to be wounded. In order for us to have peace, he had to be afflicted. Now, why would he say that? I mean, we've gone astray a little bit. But the question, to answer the question, why would he say that? Why does he think that the need is so great? Why, Why does Jesus have to be crushed and afflicted and pierced through in order for us to find healing? Well, you have to ask, what have we gone astray from? And the answer is that we have gone astray from God. Each of us turning to our own way, verse 6. You see, Isaiah says that he was pierced for our transgression. To transgress something is to cross a known boundary, right? We call it a trespass today, right? That's why it says no trespassing. You cross a known boundary. And the question is, is what is the boundary that Isaiah feels like we have crossed? Don't you know that you will be like God if you eat this fruit? The boundary that we crossed was the boundary between the creator and his creation, between the sovereign and his subjects, See, it was we who walked into the throne room of God and we pushed God off of the throne or tried to and we took a scepter for ourselves and we made ourselves little wooden crowns and we sat on that throne and we said, we are going to rule. We are going to have it our way. It was an act of treason. Cosmic mutiny, cosmic Rebellion. John Stott says that the essence of sin is that we human beings are substituting ourselves for God. There are a lot of ways to do this, you know. And if you think about this as the essence of human sin, it really redefines how we view ourselves and our sin and our problem. I was once talking to a friend in college, and and he knew I was a Christian, and he knew my beliefs, and he'd be coming to a Bible study that I was doing, and he asked me, he said, you know, Kyle, what about me? I mean, do you really think that I'm under the wrath and curse of God, that God will punish me? I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, and, and I try to do what's right. And what about my life, would you say, is, is not in keeping with, with God's will? Now, I've got to tell you something. He was a pretty good guy. In fact, there are many aspects of his life that I found enviable. He was the kind of guy that, that girls wanted to be around at the end of the night because he knew that he would, they knew that he would honor them and respect them, which wasn't a given in college. He was the kind of guy who you wanted as a friend because you knew he was loyal and he was going to show up. He was dependable. He was kind. He was a pretty good guy. And I said, I said, you are a pretty good guy. In fact, there are many ways in which your virtues exceed mine and I'm, and I'm envious of them. And I told him that. I told him the ways in which that was true. I said, but here's the thing. 
you believe deep down that by being a pretty good guy, you are going to be able to overcome whatever wrong that you may have done and your faults. And you were living on that trajectory. You were, you've chosen that path. But here's the thing. That means that you're trying to be your own savior. But in trying to be your own savior, you're rejecting the salvation that God has provided. And you are also dethroning God because savior is an office that he reserves the right to hold. He is the Lord's Savior. And so in trying to save yourself, what you have basically done is you said, God, you're not going to be God. You're not going to be Savior. I'm going to be my own Savior. I'm going to be God. And yes, you are a pretty good guy, but that is a pretty bad move. In fact, that's cosmic mutiny and rebellion and treason. To wipe God off of the throne. And I've done it too. And it deserves... It deserves the wrath and curse of God. Do you know what the punishment was in Rome for those who were insurrectionists against Caesar, for those who, who rebelled in mutiny against Caesar, who tried to take over an area of land and take it from the Roman government? Do you know what it was? Crucifixion. And he was pierced for our transgression, verse 5. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people he was punished. Pierced for the transgression of insurrection. Though he was not an insurrectionist, we are. See, if the essence of sin is to substitute ourselves for God, the essence of salvation is that God substitutes himself for us. He puts himself in our place. See, this may not be the Savior that we want, but this is the Savior that we desperately need. My friend came home from work one day, and he looked over at his neighbor's house, and it was on fire. And he came outside, and the house just erupted very, very quickly. And we're talking like, thankfully, the people got outside. No one was hurt. But this nice house in the suburban home was just kind of, you know, the whole front of it was on fire. And, uh, and my friend looks over, and he sees the man who owns the house. And he sees him taking his garden hose and kind of and kind of uh, and kind of watering the fire with his garden hose. And we're talking about a thing where the whole facade of the house, the whole front of it, is like erupted on fire. Before he took the garden hose, though, that was his genius move. Before he did that, he was running up and down the front of his like shrubs, like the flower beds on the front, blowing with his mouth, trying to blow out this fire. Right I, now. Here's what I want to say. A, I don't fault the man. And I believe that in some way, shape, and form, being able to blow on his house was actually deeply therapeutic and helpful. And I'm okay with that in that moment. I'm okay with that guy getting a little help. 
I'm okay with him spraying his garden hose, but let's not kid ourselves. He needed the fire trucks which were coming around the corner. And no amount of him blowing on, the, on his front yard and no amount of that garden hose was actually going to solve the problem. Right? Listen, we have a deep problem. We have a fundamental problem that we don't have resources for. And we can, we can throw a lot of stuff at it. And a lot of stuff that we throw at our problem, I'm okay with. And I think that it helps us at a certain level. And, you know, because we live in a world of sin and suffering, I'm okay. I'm okay with mindfulness. I'm okay with, I'm okay with, uh, I'm okay with counselors. I'm okay with, with uh, the medicine that we need and, and that kind of thing. But if we think that any of that stuff or all that stuff or someone tidying up our house or whatever, if we think that it's going to get to the deeper problem, we are like that man who is blowing on his front yard. When a house is on fire, we need the fire trucks to come. We need a salvation from outside of us. What Jesus provides is a salvation from outside of us that no amount of advice or willpower or encouragement can solve the problem that we have, but he can. See, we need a punishment that brings peace. And for a punishment to bring us peace, true peace, for, for anything to bring peace in our lives and reconciliation... Deep peace and deep reconciliation, you know this in your life. When you have something in your life that needs deep peace and deep reconciliation, how is that brought about? Well, the only way it can be brought about is if the crime, the fault, is actually dealt with fully and clearly and acknowledged totally. He acknowledges it. He named it for what he is, and he covers it. And he did so willingly. And that's what brings healing. And that's what brings us to our last point. That Jesus came not only in the most unexpected way, and he not only comes to meet our deepest need, but he comes to reveal the love of God to us. You know, there's so much in Isaiah 53 that is absolutely startling. Like, he was one whom men hid their faces from. And that he didn't look like a man. It doesn't say that he didn't look like himself. It says that he didn't look like a man. And there are so many startling verses in Isaiah 53. But I think the most startling is probably verse 10. And it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. That the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. God's will, really? God crushed him? You know, if you ask the question, which is a good question to ask in Holy Week, why did Jesus die? You could answer that question from a number of levels. And I have read very, very interesting and thick accounts of various ways uh, to answer that question. You can answer it, I don't know if you know, you can answer it at a socioeconomic level. You can talk about Rome and the poverty of the Jews and all the social and societal implications that led to that point. You could answer it from, uh, yeah, you can answer it from a political level and talk about the tyranny of Rome. You could answer it from, um, you could answer it from uh, 
You answer by looking at Judas betraying his friend and the issue of greed. You could answer it by talking about the, the politics of the religious landscape in Judaism and the jealousy of the chief priest and, and the Sanhedrin. You could talk about Pilate's complicity and his cowardice and his expedience. There are lots of ways in which you could answer this question. But I think the deepest answer is not political or sociological or economic. The deepest answer is theological. It was God's will to crush him. Now, a lot of people, they read that and they don't like this idea of, of the son taking on the wrath and the curse of God. That the father actually intentionally crushed the son. Most of, a lot of people today say, that sounds like cosmic child abuse. That's awful. Been there for ages, it's interesting. People didn't look at this as cosmic child abuse. They looked at it as the thing that brought them the most comfort in life and healing. Because they understood that it's not simply that it's the Father's will to crush him, it's also the servant's will to be crushed. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The idea of, being, of him bearing our griefs is not an idea of him passively having them laid on, them, on him, but of him actively, volitionally choosing to take them up. See, this is a sacrifice that is born by both. By both the Father and the Son, by both God and the servant. And it is a sign of triune love. See, a question that Jewish scholars forever have been baffled about when they come to Isaiah 53 is who is the servant? As you're reading through the book of Isaiah and the, the servant songs open, it's really clear, it seems, that the servant is Israel. But then you start to see that the servant looks a lot less like Israel, more like a righteous remnant within Israel. But then you start whittling your way down and, and you think, well... Well, maybe this is just a single person because it talks about my righteous one. So people say, well, maybe this is talking about Isaiah himself, the prophet. And yet, what does verse 6 say? We all. Isaiah speaking. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is part of the we all. The remnant is part of the we all. Israel is part of the we all. And so who is the him? It is the righteous one. Verse 9, who has done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It is the sinless one. It is God himself. You see, you see this shadowy figure that forever people were having a hard time figuring out, who is this? I think the only thing, to make, the only thing that makes sense of it, 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 is, it, it is 
Jesus, who is the man that God became when God decided to become a man. And so, what we see is in the Son willfully taking up our sin and being crushed. When we see the Father willfully crushing the Son, what we see is the united God who is giving Himself over for the salvation of His people. And God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was the sacrifice of this Father who did not spare His only Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. It was the sacrifice of the Son who loved me and gave Himself for me. And they were done in concert together, and it is love that is incomprehensible. In verse 11... We read, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see, talking about the servant, and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You know what that means? It means that all that he did and his will to be crushed, he chose to do it, you know, he got to the other side of it and he said, it was all worth it. I am satisfied. It's one thing for someone to choose to do something before they do it and to keep their word because they're true to their word and to come out of the other side and say, well, I kept my word. It's another thing for someone to choose to do something at great cost to themselves and come to the other side and say, and I would choose it again over and over and over again. It was all worth it. I had the experience, very formative experience, of growing up alongside a family who had a disabled child. I got to watch them bring that child into the world, and I also got to watch them bury that child. I saw all the sacrifices that they made for this child who could not walk, from, from carrying the child on their backs when they went on family hiking trips when the kid was way bigger than a baby. I mean, a, a big child on your back. I saw them, I saw them sacrifice to, to remodel their home for this child. I saw them go to the child's school rather than have them in a special school, have them in, in, in a normal school that, where they, they went there twice a day to, uh, to, to change out the, the child's um, fluid bags, catheterize the child. I saw them make emergency trip after emergency trip to the hospital and stay there for sleepless nights and weeks on end. I mean... I mean, time after time after time after time again. And uh, when the mom stood up at the funeral and spoke of all the sacrifices that they had been through, she said, and I wouldn't take one of them back, I would do it all again. Because of the relationship that I got to have with that child. It was a picture of Jesus 
who not after just getting his hands dirty, but having them pierced through, looks at the wounds of his hands and the anguish that he suffered, the wrath and curse of God that he endured, and then he looks out at those who are accounted righteous, who are put in a righteous relationship with God, and he says, I'm satisfied. It's good. It's all worth it. That's how God looks at you. Is there any love greater than that? I don't think so. I know there isn't. Receive it today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.